You're listening to Beyond the Jargon, a jargon-free look at graduate students and their research journey here at UVic. Welcome to Beyond the Jargon. I'm your host today, Liz MacArthur, and joining me in the studio is Christina Schellenberg. Thank you for being here today. Oh, thank you for inviting me. <laughs> and I know you study oceanography, but I don't know the, the precise details. So can you tell us what, uh, what is your research here at UVic? Well, my research is chemical oceanography, in particular um, trace metals in the ocean. And when an oceanographer talks about trace metals, more often than not, we talk about something that's um, limiting phytoplankton in the ocean. So phytoplankton are very small plants in the ocean, minuscule, microscopic, you might say. And they need a lot of things to grow. They need the sort of nutrients that you give your plants when you give them fertilizer. And they also need a bunch of micronutrients called trace metals. Not just trace metals, actually. They also need vitamins, per se. But um, I particularly am interested in trace metals and in iron. Mm. And you may have heard a little bit about iron in terms of the, the Haida Gwaii thing that happened around here not too long ago, the fertilization. Oh, right. That's right. They sort of experiment. <laughs> wasn't it iron filings or something? Was it dumped into the ocean to try yes. and fertilize, I guess, the ocean? Yes. I don't know all the details. It mm. was not a scientific experiment. Mm. So we don't know all the details of what they actually did or how they did it or what came of it. But scientists do stuff like that um, scientifically, where historically we have had iron fertilization experiments. So just to track back a little bit, so iron, one thing that I study, is one of the things in the ocean that sometimes is not enough of. Mm -hmm. um, so it's something that the plankton need, and we want the plankton to grow, because when they grow, they take CO2 from the water, but that ultimately came from the atmosphere. So if they grow more, they will actually take more CO2. Hmm. However, we don't know where that CO2 will end up necessarily. So just because they took it does not mean it's gone. It hmm. might just come back out in, in, in a loop sort of thing. Um, so it's, it's not a simple story. But overall, we're interested in, in iron because in about 30% of the ocean, that seems to be what makes these little bugs not grow as well as they could. Hmm. A um, deficiency in iron. A deficiency in iron, exactly. Mm. And we happen to have an area that is iron deficient just outside of Vancouver Island. So mm. as soon as you go off the shelf and another, I don't know, 200 kilometers or so, you end up in an area that actually more often than not does not seem to have enough iron for the phytoplankton to grow well. And so that's where I've done a lot of my research um, together with the um, Institute of Ocean Sciences. Mm -hmm. They run regular cruises going out into that area. And so you can do all sorts of experiments there. We just grab water. Well, for one, you grab water and you measure how much iron is in there. Mm -hmm. um, then you can measure different sorts of iron. So iron is not just iron. That would be too simple. Mm -hmm. um, and some iron might be easier for the phytoplankton to take up than other sorts of iron. And then you can also do experiments where you grab some water and you put it into a, a bucket, well, not a bucket, but um, into a big flask, say. And then you add iron and you see if the phytoplankton grow better. Mm. You can add other things. Um, you can do all sorts of, you know, give them different sorts of light or different. So you can run experiments like that without actually dumping anything in the ocean. Mm. Um, and then, but historically, how we actually found out that for sure this whole iron story is even a story that there is such a thing as iron limitation in parts of the ocean, and the Southern Ocean is probably the biggest part of that, um, is by doing these sorts of scientifically controlled experiments where iron has been put into the ocean together with a tracer to figure out where it ended up and then to see 
um, how the phytoplankton responded, but also where the iron ended up. So there's a lot more things you want to measure in the end, not just how much plankton are there. Wow. Okay, I immediately yeah. have like a million questions <laughs> okay. about all, everything you're doing. <laughs> the first thing that struck me was the fact that you don't know where the CO2 ends up from the phytoplankton. Is it similar to in the way that trees would take the CO2 out yes. of the air? It's the same process. It's but photosynthesis. Where does the <laughs> CO2 go uh, from the trees? Do we know the end result of that, or is it different? Does that differ from the plankton? Well, so with a tree, a tree can grow up to like a thousand years old or so. Mm-hmm. So it's in that tree for a thousand years unless a tree burns. Right. But the phytoplankton is a bit different because they're so small. They're really they're like, I think of them more as grass um, mm. or something like that in um, in the ter- in, in the way that they're food for other things more mm. than anything. So and and as soon as as they start to grow in most part of the ocean, other things will grow as well and be like, oh, I have food now. I grow as well, and mm. then a whole food web. Um, develops around that. Mm-hmm. so that, But it depends a bit on a lot of other factors and of what kind of phytoplankton grow. There's like gazillions of different, you wouldn't believe how different they can be and how different they look, but also how different they behave. And we still understand very little actually in the bigger picture of what happens there. But So it can happen that they grow so fast and it's a certain kind of phytoplankton that is not very edible, say. Mm. And so their predators can catch up and then you have this huge bloom and that bloom can actually make it all the way to the bottom of the ocean. And if it does that and decomposes there, then that CO2, they will still decompose most of them. I mean, some of it might just actually get buried and then it's gone for really long time scales. But the bigger part would still be at some point recycled. But if it makes it to the deep ocean, at least the time scale on which it will come back up mm. is about a thousand years because it takes it, the ocean about a thousand years to do a complete overturn. So if you threw a molecule into the ocean, say just out here at Vancouver Island, it would be back in around a thousand years here. But wow. it would have traveled all the world's oceans on its way. So it's mm. pretty cool. Um, and a lot of that traveling happens at depth. So when it's at depth, it can't really um, exchange with the atmosphere. So that means that CO2 is buried for that period of time. Mm. But as I said, not forever. Eventually it'll come out. And if then there's less CO2 in the atmosphere, it'll actually bubble up. Hmm. Is that uh, the death of the phytoplankton and then sort of being at the bottom of the ocean there? Is that linked to, I know that there's um, there's a patch of ocean off the peninsula that is... Um, Anoxic? An- anoxic, yeah. Um, there isn't, well, well, there is a relationship of sorts, but when phytoplankton grow, they actually produce oxygen just mm-hmm. like a tree does. Mm-hmm. So at the surface of the ocean, you often have higher oxygen. And I should emphasize phytoplankton because the word phyto implies they do photosynthesis. They can only grow at the surface of the ocean. Mm-hmm. So these things cannot grow beyond, say, 150, 200 meters, really. Mm-hmm. Um, most parts actually in the upper 50 meters, I would say. They, they only can do this at the surface ocean. So the moment they go down, they become passive and they become food for all sorts of things. So it can be a bigger thing. It can also be that they just decompose and bacteria munch them up, so to speak. When bacteria do that, they use up oxygen. So if you have an area where there's a lot of primary production, that's what we call when phytoplankton grow, at the surface of the ocean, and then they, they trickle down and they are being decomposed on the way down, then it can happen if that deeper water doesn't get exchanged often with the atmosphere that you actually have low oxygen developing there. Yeah, which makes these patches, the anaerobic patches. Yeah, but you need the, the two situations together. You need primary production on the surface that trickles down, and then you need a lack of exchange with the atmosphere. Right. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit more about how you went up uh, researching yeah. this stuff here at UVic. Um, where did you study when you first started your academic career? Like, Did you start at university immediately after high school? No, not directly. So I, I grew up in Germany. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I was done high school, I didn't quite know what I wanted to do. I knew I loved science. I knew I loved the ocean. And I knew I loved writing, actually. And so I was trying to 
get these things combined somehow. And I couldn't mm -hmm. think of too many ways, but science journalism was one of the things I actually considered. And I was told, if you want to do that, then study science and study what you like, because mm -hmm. then you have something you can write about that you understand really well. And so I ventured out. But well, first, I took a year off doing all sorts of like doing internships and stuff and spending some time in the States working in a camp. <laughs> and, um, like a summer camp? A nature camp, oh, yeah, yeah, it was actually quite fun. Because in, in Germany at that time still, um, the guys had to do either military service or social service, which mm. took about a year, so I figured I have that year to do something fun and I'm still not at a disadvantage. Right. Um, so I took that year off. And then I went to school for marine environmental sciences in Germany. Mm. Um, and that was three years that I did that. And then I just wanted to do what a lot of Germans do, which is go abroad for a year and come back. Mm-hmm. So I managed to um, figure out how to go to Halifax, uh, Nova Scotia. Somehow mm. I had a, a thing for Halifax. I didn't oh, that's on really the ocean, couldn't. I guess. <laughs> yeah, that's one thing. I had heard about it just once, and I was like, this is where I have to go. So I went, um, and I liked it there a lot, and I got offered to finish my master's there. Mm. So I did actually end up not going back, and I haven't really been back to Germany other than for visits since. Mm. So I finished my master's there in biological oceanography, mm -hmm. doing optical stuff. Mm. However, my supervisor there is actually one of the people that are quite involved in the iron story in the sense that um, he's quite opposed to doing this iron fertilization thing commercially, mm. which is sort of what was attempted yeah, with the Haida. Yeah, so that's the sort of thing that he had actually fought against. So even though that wasn't my study mm. then, I, I knew about this sort of thing. And um, I always was interested in the iron thing. I remember even in my master's doing... Um, a seminar about it actually in my chemical oceanography class so mm -hmm. and then I took time off again to try to be a journalist for a while mm -hmm. and worked as an editor and uh, did all sorts of things and was actually in Montreal when I decided that it was time to go back to oceanography mm -hmm. partly because I realized that was one area of work where I never really counted my hours where I was never like oh it's time to go home it's five right. o'clock I, I just loved what I did um, and so I decided to go back for my PhD and was actually my former supervisor who suggested I go where I am now. Mm -hmm. and, um, so that's worked out pretty well. <laughs> <laughs> What's the, can you sort of outline some broad strokes differences between what you studied when you were doing your master's and what you study now? Um, so you said it was biological before, now it's mm -hmm. chemicals. And why did you move in that direction? Well, one thing that's cool about the ocean and what I like about it is that it, it is interdisciplinary by definition almost. You mm -hmm. cannot study one thing and not worry at all about the other. Mm -hmm. So like what I just said about the chemicals in the ocean and I talked a lot about the phytoplankton that is the biology so the mm -hmm. phytoplankton need the chemicals and the chemicals get there or are not there because of physical oceanography so these things are really very very interconnected and um, so therefore it's not actually as far a deviation as it might sound the methods are different mm -hmm. and the details are different um, but the whole thing actually really meshes very well um, and uh, I don't know. I hadn't thought too much about it. There were certain aspects of biological oceanography I wanted not to do. I was worried about culturing because that can just take a lot of time because when you culture phytoplankton, it's like having a little pet. Right. And if anything goes wrong, you have a power outage or something, you just start over again. And I had seen some of that happening to other people. I was like, ah, this is not what I want to do. Right even though now for a postdoc I'm considering it, which is kind of funny. <laughs> but, uh, but I figured for a PhD that's not a very safe bet, so I wanted to do something more uh, quantitative and measurable, and that, so I thought chemical oceanography would be good for that. But also I like about it that it, it is different enough, but connected enough that, you know, it's, I'd look at it as a new skill set. Mm. So I, I didn't just want to keep going what I already knew, because now I have these two different things and I can maybe combine them eventually. Mm -hmm. um, 
So it was just yeah, a, a way of learning something new as well, I guess. Mm. Yeah. Um, you sound very passionate when you talk about iron in the ocean, especially <laughs> when you talk about you know the differences between yeah. scientific experiments and people just sort of maybe without fully understanding, just toying with this kind of balance. Yeah. What? Why are you so passionate about it? Is it because it's linked to some some bigger picture that you can see, or just sparks that interest in you? Well, as I mentioned, there is this um, connection with CO2. So on mm. some level, it's probably not a straightforward uh, kind of mechanism, but it is possible that phytoplankton are implied in like um, how ice ages happen. I don't think it's fully understandable one, and I'm not entirely up on the literature about that, so I should be careful what I say here. But it seems that at least in so some sort of feedback mechanism, there seems to be a way that at least the phytoplankton help to keep the CO2 out of the atmosphere during an ice age, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But I could be wrong. And, but it, there is definitely some sort of connection that people think might be there. And that would have to do with that there was more iron available in certain parts of the ocean. And that could have had to do with it was more dusty because the remote ocean has a problem that it doesn't really get much of a, an iron input because mm -hmm. iron is not very soluble in the ocean. So that's one problem. Um, and then, so that means unless there is a constant source of it, from somewhere there's just not much there because it just naturally disappears more or less mm. um, and so vast areas of the remote ocean unless they have some sort of input and we're still learning about what all the sources are so dust is only one of them but it is an important one and it's as far as I know still the one that people think most about when they think about the ice ages but again then we don't know how bioavailable so how readily available to the phytoplankton iron from dust might be. Are you talking about like an iron dust in the ocean that's coming from maybe, I don't even know where it comes well, from. Well, not just iron dust, actually any dust mm. is almost will contain a little bit of iron. Oh, so okay. dust, I mean like soil that's just, you know, mm -hmm. so during an ice age, the, um, the sea surface would have been down by, I think, 100, 150 meters from mm -hmm. what it is now. So that would have exposed vast areas of what is now continental shelf. Mm -hmm. And these areas might have been quite dusty. And if if you combine that with more wind, then a lot of that stuff might have ended up in the ocean. Mm -hmm. And if then it gets to be soluble iron in some way or gets to be dissolved iron because mm -hmm. that's the preferred form. But as far as we know, we don't know a whole lot. It might be that some phytoplankton mm -hmm. can actually access iron directly from a dust particle. That's stuff that we're still studying. And that, that is just, yeah. One other thing, though, about it, I mean, so there is this climate aspect of it all, but it's just also really really fun to research that, that sort of stuff because it makes you marvel at, you know, the, the different ways that these phytoplankton have come up to exist in mm. an ocean that's been changing, like, geologically. Um, and, and to just think about how all of that happens and, and all the things that you don't know yet. Mm -hmm. um, so that's really fun, actually. Yeah, it must be uh, exciting to be sort of researching something that is still unknown or not known very much about rather than going over, you know, already known territory. Exactly. I mean, I, I would hope that all research is that to some extent. Um, but yeah, I actually especially enjoy the interdisciplinarity of it, I think. Mm. Talking to biologists and getting their input and then realizing that there's a big part that you've missed and then trying to think about how that, you know, goes together with what you already know or what you're studying or how it informs how you do your experiments. And I just came from a conference too, so I'm a little bit high on that maybe <laughs> because that's always a bit like... Yeah, it's quite crazy and fun to, to be there with all these people that also are on the edge of something new mm -hmm. and, you know, to figure out what they've done. And yeah, mm -hmm. it's fun. You talked about um, a boat going out to this patch sort of off the island here that has low iron or mm -hmm. no iron. So do you spend a lot of time on boats actually on the ocean? That's actually one advantage of being an oceanographer. And one of the things that has always drawn me to it is I love being on boats and you get to go 
on research vessels quite frequently, depending on what you do, some mm. more, some less. If your research entails that, then you might actually, I think I've been on seven research cruises during my PhD now. Mm. There's this ship, the Tully, people may have seen it around here actually, um, that goes out to Ocean Station Papa three times a year, mm -hmm. which is at 145 west, I think, <laughs> 50 north. So they even do it in February. I just watched actually um, mm. a little video about the waves they saw. I was a bit jealous. So yeah, that's a really nice program that's running out of uh, the Institute of Ocean Sciences that mm. is regularly happening still and um, where we are lucky enough to often be invited to come along and do our research. So mm -hmm. that's been really good. Are the research trips long? Are you out on the boat for a long time or are they fairly short? These ones are between two and two and a half weeks usually. Mm. Well, it takes a while to get out there, yeah. and uh, and then you have to still go back. <laughs> so um, yeah, that's that's about these. Like often, though, especially Southern Ocean cruises are often up to like two or three months. Wow. Yeah, because you know, even just getting everything ready, getting down there is such a big production. Might as well then stick it out for a while and get a lot done. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What's it like being on one of these research cruises? What's the day-to-day -day life like? Are you working all the time? Or are you battling things like seasickness and stuff like that? Well, I'm lucky I haven't been seasick. Some people do battle that, though, and there are some real troopers. Yeah, it's it's very structured in some ways. You do work a lot harder, I'd say, than on land usually. Mm -hmm. Like often you work very, very long days because that's your chance to get your samples. So you'll just do it. Mm -hmm. um, it's not unusual for people to work 24 hours straight sometimes. Mm -hmm. um, I haven't really had to do that very much, I think. But um, yeah, you just you're out there whenever you hit the station and when your your cast is about to happen. So your cast meaning. So there's a lot of different things happening on a cruise like that. And we have actually special equipment for our trace metal sampling because we would otherwise contaminate it. You can imagine if mm. iron is what you're interested in, you're on a metal ship, you have to be extremely careful. Um, so there's a lot of gloves and a lot of admonishing people to not touch this and not touch that. <laughs> so we have our own equipment that we use. So we get our own cast. So cast being getting something into the water to take a sample and bring it back up. Mm. And on, on these um, Line P cruises, we, as we call them, there's just there's a schedule that the chief scientist makes, which is, is really nice because all other things are off. Like you don't even, we have internet up to a point and then even that kind of stops. And the only thing you worry about is that, mm -hmm. is, you know, when is your next job and how do you prepare for it and mm -hmm. you want to be ready for it. And then you also stand a watch actually, which mm -hmm. means you help because the Line P program is a monitoring program so they also need help with just the general stuff that needs to be run and so you send a six-hour watch every day where you're around to help with that sort of thing as well um, and so yeah that also makes you learn about other things it, it's a great way to connect with other people I sometimes call it camp for scientists too right <laughs> because you have, you have no distractions all you do is that science and yeah it's it's just really fun little scientific retreat almost yes <laughs> but it, it can be very intense and the sleep deprivation can definitely get to you too so it can be also highly stressful I should say it's not always just ha 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 but <laughs> for, for a lot of it though it's it's a very good time and and I, I also feel that you make different connections with the people and you know if you then meet again at a conference it's just different if you've been on a cruise together Mm -hmm. than if you've just maybe written a scientific paper together. Mm -hmm. You talked about wanting to or being interested in journalism as well and working as an editor. Mm -hmm. How did that experience sort of, I mean, you talk about really your passion is science. Did that work as, a, as an editor or in journalism inform your work as a scientist, do you think? I don't know how it informs. It definitely helps me to write, I think, mm -hmm. because I'm not, for one, I'm not scared of writing. Mm -hmm. And also, yeah, I'm just used to it, I guess. I still have to see if my style actually works for scientific journals. I'm, I'm waiting to, to hear back on that sort of thing. So I'm a little worried about that, that maybe I'm too simplistic or something like that. We'll have to see. Other than that, 
How is it informed? Not directly, but I'm also, I'm not done with it. Mm. So it's it's a bit, I'm flip-flopping sometimes and I'm also not 100% sure which way things are going to go. And I think I will always do a little bit of both. And right now, because I'm finishing my PhD, I don't mm -hmm. have a lot of time to do the writing. Uh, but it's still something I think about. Mm -hmm. And I guess you never completely stop being a journalist to a point. You always look for the good story. And even if you don't end up writing it, you're kind of like, oh, that would have been a good one. And, <laughs> are you uh, tempted when you're doing your research sometimes? Like, oh, I just really, I would like to write this. and Not so much my own, mm -hmm. because I've, I found and I've also been told it's very different to write about the stuff you know so well because you know all the ways that it it isn't simple yeah and so it's very difficult to simplify it and be happy with it in the end mm -hmm. so I actually stay away from that but I still feel I'm quite able to talk about oceanography with people or just science in general because I and I know how scientists work for example mm -hmm. and uh, so yeah it's still something I'm I'm considering in some way. So it wasn't a turn away in terms of I, I don't like this job at all. Mm -hmm. And I learned a lot for sure. It was just that particular job I wasn't really moving forward in. And so I, and also things were going a bit crazy at that company. And it was only a matter of time till they would have fired me because I was the most junior and they were getting rid of people. Mm. So yes. I just made <laughs> that, that happen. Story. Yeah. yeah, so I made that just happen myself before mm -hmm. they did it. And uh, But yeah, there were other things that fell into place to get me back into science. But yeah, no, I'm, I don't consider it an either or entirely just in terms of time, an either or mm. maybe. Yeah. How much longer do you have uh, do completion time for your PhD? Well, I'm hoping to be done in about a year. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> do you have, um, I mean, obviously you'll have thesis and you're doing research related yeah. to um, a specific thing, but do you have something that you, like personal goals for what you're researching right now, like something that you want, maybe want to add to um, this body of work or are there applications that you could see that you would like to come into um, practice? Mm, not really. I don't no. think it's, it's very, <laughs> it is, you could almost say basic research, a lot of it. Mm -hmm. And so, I, yeah, I, I don't, well, certainly no applications I can think of. Mm. Yeah, it's, it just goes into the general body of knowledge. And that's what I hope would be nice to be cited and read, of course. But a, apart from that, no, I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. No. Yeah. And I guess after you've done your PhD, you said something about uh, you're interested maybe in postdoc work, but do mm -hmm. you think you'll take a break from school again or do you think you want to power through? I think I take a break for a good long vacation is my plan, mm -hmm. but but not necessarily a break break in terms of a few years of doing something entirely different. Mm -hmm. No. But yeah, I'm kind of open right now. I'm just starting to look around of what's out there and yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, that's all my questions for you. Thank you for being my guest today. Well, thank you. Again, thank you for listening to Beyond the Jargon on CFUV.